Welcome to our, uh, our special evening service. How are you tonight? So great to see so many of you out here uh, for this incredible topic. There are so many people curious about sex in our church, and you're here. All right, that's enough joking. No, we are... Uh, we are just really, um, we've been praying for this and we're just really trusting God that uh, through, just through the scriptures, through the truth of God, through AJ, to our hearts, to our minds, that the Lord will begin to untie knots. He'll begin to erase some things that need to be erased and rewrite beautiful scriptural truth in our minds and hearts around this topic. So we are so glad that you're here. So most of you know who AJ is in case you're just joining us this evening and you don't know. Uh, AJ Swoboda is professor uh, at Bushnell University, which is up in Eugene. He's a prolific author, a speaker, uh, and uh, as we learned uh, this, this morning, he's a farmer as well. Um, <laughs> and we just, he's a friend. He's our friend and, uh, and he's, he's literally one of the best Bible teachers in the state of Oregon and let's just say on the West Coast. And we're just really, really blessed and privileged and honored to have him here tonight. So let's give him a big hand of applause and appreciation. AJ. Yeah, let's keep that here. Thank you so much. Wow. Many words have been used to describe me. Prolific has never been one of them. Oh, I got you guys. <laughs> uh, after this morning's sermon, a gentleman in the congregation felt moved by the Lord to get me an in and out gift card. What's that? It wasn't Billy. No. I just want to say, I, I think God's asking me to move here. It feels. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Oh, man, so good to be with you. So good to be together tonight. Um, we, have, uh, we have a complicated task ahead of us this evening. Um, in order to accomplish what we want to do, I'm going to ask uh, a few things of you. The first thing that I would like to ask is, number one, would you um, make available in front of you a copy of the Bible? Um, we are going to spend almost the uh, entirety of our time this evening uh, wrestling with uh, the Bible. Um, so I want you to have that. And I as well want to encourage you, I want to encourage you to take some notes. And not really actually for the, the purpose of, yeah, I want you to, to take some stuff home with you tonight. But more than that, when we're finished, I'm going to share for about, my gut tells me, I'm going to share for about an hour and 15 minutes or something like that. And then we're going to have some time for Q&R, which is response. And when you talk about something as sensitive as sex as we're going to tonight, um, my gut tells me that it may provoke some questions for us. Uh, that would be the hope, at least. Um, let me lay out just a little bit of the program, what, what, what we're going to be doing actually over the course of the year. You, you may not know this, but this is actually going to be one of four lectures that I'm going to be delivering over the course of the year. Um, this evening, uh, we're going to have uh, a preliminary conversation about the first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Um, in about four months, three months, I'm going to come back, and we're going to have a conversation about the biblical theology of sex, marriage, and singleness, and what the Bible has to say about that topic. 
And then after we've sort of done some work there, we're going to move on to um, what would t- traditionally be kind of one of the harder conversations, and we're going to talk about um, uh, sexual sin. Um, and that, that you're, you're going to notice we're not going to start with sexual sin this evening uh, because you don't teach. It's a, l- it's a little bit like parenting. You don't teach a kid to have a good nutrition just by telling him everything that's wrong. You don't want to start with like ripping apart candy. You want to start by introducing them to the good nutritious food. And, and so we're going to start with like the pot, the good, the, the, what God says positively. And then we're going to move to, um, in, in, in about six, eight months, we're going to talk about, um, sexual sin. And then our last session is we're going to talk about uh, sexual formation. And that is how the Holy Spirit is seeking to form all of us in our, in our sexual selves. Um, because every person in this room is a sexual being created by God to be a sexual being. So how in the world do we follow Jesus in the bodies that God has given to us? It would be absolutely asinine for me to have this conversation with you tonight without pleading with God's presence to be here. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are worthy of every ounce of breath that we have in our lungs. We praise you and we love you. And we are so grateful that we worship a God that invented sex. (laughs) This is your creation. It's your good creation. And as we talk about it, would you be present in this room with us? We lean on you with everything we have. Please help, God. Please help. In the name of Jesus, amen. That sound good? That sound good? Okay. Let's talk about, before we begin, let's talk about the talk before the talk. Jesus, the birds, and the bees. This summer, um, my son, Elliot, 10 years old, 11 this summer, my wife and I driving through the Idaho desert. Beautiful. And we decide it is time to tell him everything. (laughs) You don't have this conversation too early in their lives because if you have this conversation when they're three or four, they just won't ever look at you ever again. (laughs) They'll, They'll look at you, but they'll just be sort of disgusted that you exist and that that brought them into this world. This summer, we decided it was time to have the full conversation. It was such a great conversation. We explained it all. He's sitting in the back, Quinn in the driver's side seat, Elliot in the back, and we sort of explain how he came to be. And he says, there's a little silence. You You can tell when a kid is processing. He's taking it all in. (laughs) And he says, so can you, like, talk while you do it? (laughs) Quinn and I look at each other. Yeah. You can talk while you do it. About 30 seconds of silence. And out of the back. So, can you, like, walk while you do it? (laughs) 
I look at my wife. I don't know. That's tricky. That's tricky. And for the next hour, as the sun came down in Idaho, our son was invited into a whole new world. And I have to say, at that moment in time, that was one of the most sacred parenting moments I've ever had. To get to invite my son into something so holy and sacred. Let me tell you, he had questions I had never even thought about. And I love that he got to bring them to us. Um, This last year, I, for the very first time, as an undergraduate professor, taught a whole class on sex. Uh, The the room was about 30 students. Um, I would venture to guess 20 of the students or so identified as Christians. Um, I had two students in the class um, that identified as, uh, as, as, as gay. I had one student who identified as a lesbian. I had a couple students that did not identify as Christians. And we got together for 16 weeks. And we talked about the birds and the bees. And it was the most... I I went in terrified. I have been wanting to teach on this topic for so long. I've longed to talk about this largely because it has become a topic so incredibly un... It has become an almost um, untouchable topic in the church because whenever we bring it up, we end up offending or hurting people's feelings. And yet at the same time, knowing that this generation is so hungry to hear about sex, so hungry to hear what God has to say. Spent 16 weeks and talked about the birds and the bees. And I learned something very interesting about these students, and that is that I asked at the beginning of the class, I asked the students, how many of you growing up in church were ever taught about God's vision for sexuality? And and so I just simply asked the question, how many of you have been instructed in what the Bible has to say about this? And of 30 students, not one student raised their hand. Every single student to a T sat down, stared at me and said, we were taught by it not being taught. Now, by the way, as an educator, um, part of my job as an educator is my job is to write curriculum. And what that means is my job is to come up with good content to help my students stay engaged. My job is to be, I'm a curriculum producer. That's my job. It's more than that, but a big part of what I do is to develop curriculum. You know, when you're a teacher, there's three kinds of curriculum. There's what you call overt curriculum, which is the curriculum that's in your PowerPoints. It's this stuff that's up on the walls. It's the stuff you teach. That's overt curriculum. There's implicit curriculum, which is the stuff that you don't put on the PowerPoint, but that people get because it's who you are. It's the stuff you teach by being who you are. But there's a third type of curriculum called null curriculum. And null curriculum is the stuff that you teach on because you don't talk about it. And I sat in a class of 30 students and realized that for 30 students, they have been taught by not having been taught on this topic. And the result is devastating. The average K through uh, 12th grader 
um, will actually receive over the course of their you know, number of years in education, they will receive in total about 17.5 hours of education about sexuality. And for any of you that are aware of the public school, school system, and the teachers, by the way, in the room that are doing their be- very best, you guys are heroes to us. You are working your tails off. Thank you for all you do. But for so many, even now in the classroom, what is being taught is so far removed from God's vision of sexuality that it's, it's, it's almost laughable from a Christian perspective. There's almost no teaching going on on the topic of sexuality in our, in our churches, and I would contend we're not talking about it because we're terrified. We're terrified of people hearing what we have to say. We're terrified of offending for some of us. We're terrified because our children are wrestling with their sexuality. We're terrified because we're wrestling with them. But the reality is, even in the church, when we don't talk about this stuff, we are discipling people by our silence. This topic is too important for us to just not talk about because it's hard. It's too important. It is life and death. It is the way of Jesus and the way of darkness. The reality is discipleship is happening. For most of us, it's just happening in all the wrong places. Because as we are silent on the topic of sexuality, TikTok is very loud about it. And Twitter is extraordinarily loud about it. And everything we're receiving from our cultural moment is very loud about it. This is my way of saying we are not serving anybody by being afraid and being silent. Are you with me? Okay. And yet, I want to ask you as we talk about this stuff to begin with some assumptions. These may feel a little bit uncomfortable. We're going to get into the text in just a second. But, but I want to ask you for a moment to begin with just some postures of the heart. Okay, These are the things that if I were teaching a class on this, uh, I would talk about. And by the way, by the time we're done, you're going to see that I argue without hesitation that the Bible is 100% correct, the way of Jesus is right, and God has a vision of sexuality that is about flourishing love and life. And it brings so much goodness to the world, and it brings so much pain when it's not lived. We're going to get there. But I'm going to ask you to have a humble posture of heart. So when I teach on this, I I want to assume a few things. Number one, I want to assume for everybody in this room, I recognize how even diverse this room may be. Some of you may be sitting in this room and you're like, yes, the Bible, we love it, we're all in. Some of you may not. And you're sitting in this room and, and, and you're wondering, what does the Bible have to say about this? For some of you, you may be sitting in the room, arms crossed and actually a little frustrated and and kind of feeling almost defensive already. We all come to this room with a lot of baggage. I want to begin with a few assumptions. The first thing is this. No matter what I share, I want to begin that even with people that I disagree with on this topic, I want to begin by assuming that I'm doing my very best and I want to assume that they're doing their very best too. I want to begin with a posture of dignity. Some of my best friends I disagree with wholeheartedly on the topic of sexuality. Some of them are dear friends of mine. And I want to begin not by agreeing, but by dignifying them as human beings worthy of my presence. 
I want to ask you, please, would you assume everyone in this room is doing their best? I also want to say this. I think it's really important and healthy that we as Christians learn to talk about this stuff with people that we disagree with. Because if we don't, we're just going to live in this small group, a siloed community, and we're never going to know how to actually have a voice in our cultural moment. Talking with people that we disagree with is critical. I also want to say this. I think that we are all in this room. I think we are all wrong on something. And the reality is, as compassionate as I am, I recognize every time I teach on this stuff, there is stuff I have simply been wrong about. At the end of the day, as convicted as I am that the Bible is true and the way of Jesus is life, I simultaneously know that the church has hurt so many people with this conversation. And I want to begin with a posture of humility that says, I still have some learning to do. I also want to say that as a Christian, I want to go where the Bible goes. And wherever scripture leads, that's where I'm going to go. And if the scripture says things that are hard for me to hear, praise the Lord. Uh, my, uh, you, you're going to get to know him. There's a, a New Testament scholar named Scott McKnight, who's a, a brilliant New Testament scholar, just absolutely incredible scholar. And he tells this funny story. When he teaches a class on the New Testament, he has all of his students in the undergraduate classroom, he has all of his students put two pieces of paper on their, on their table. And he says, on one hand, he says, tell all the students to, to describe what they think Jesus is like. And so they'll describe what Jesus is like. And he says, okay, put that piece of paper away. And then he'll say, why don't you describe what you're, li- what you're like? And they'll dry- describe themselves. And Scott McKnight says, more often than not, it's shocking. People's description of themselves is their description of Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and his point is this. I think that most of us, on some level, we recognize God made us in his image, but we're really cool returning the favor. <laughs> And we think Jesus is just like us. And I want to say in this conversation, all of us, all of us are called to bend to Jesus. We do not bend Jesus to ourselves. And so I invite you, I invite you, I invite you to let's, let's actually go where the Bible goes, not where we want the Bible to go. I also want to say, as we begin, the sexuality crisis in our culture what we might call crisis, and I put it in scare quotes though, because I think some of us are terrified. We're terrified at what is happening in our culture. And some element of that is healthy. It is terrifying. But I also want to declare that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church of Jesus. And there is nothing that you have to fear other than God. Don't let what you think to be a cultural crisis dictate your trust in the living God. Friends, we can trust Jesus today to be at peace in his presence. I also want to say that grace and truth 
can't be separated from each other. When John begins his gospel, he says, Moses brought the law, but Jesus brought grace and truth. And the point is this, we don't have permission to pick either truth or grace. And frankly, there are many churches that have decided they're gonna pick one of the two. There are grace churches and there are truth churches. And I wanna say, friends, you don't get to separate grace and truth. The same God that calls us to repentance is the same God that dies on the cross for our sins. We are called to grace and we are called to truth simultaneously. I also want to say this. Jesus loves people more than you do. <laughs> and that Jesus is the most loving person in any room. Uh, one of my students um, who was in my class said something to me. They said, you know, when I read Jesus, he has some hard things to say um, that affect um, uh, that affect." people because you know Jesus calls people on on hard stuff. He said, "How do you respond to that?" And my response is, "Jesus loves those people more than you do. He loves them more than you do." And if that's true, Jesus, if that's true, then he is worthy of being followed. We either will believe Jesus is the most graceful person in the world or we will think that we are the most graceful people in the world and Jesus is second. Jesus is the most graceful person. He's the most loving person in the world. And I want to finally say, Jesus is our guiding star. And our calling is to follow him and nobody else. We follow Jesus, who knows the truth, and the truth sets us free. Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay. If we are willing to begin there, then folks, let's have some fun. If you have your Bible, uh, you're going to want to find your way to Genesis. I don't know why. Is that not the weirdest thing? It's not my beard. My beard is not that strong. I'm going to put my microphone right over here. We need to begin at the beginning. Um, <clears throat> you know, if you're if you're at all a if you're if you're at all a um, a Marvel fan or a Star Wars fan, you know the power of an origin story. You can't really understand a character or a story without first going to the origins, the beginnings, the start. And, and, and that premise, that idea, the origin story, is, is at the end of the day. It is at the end of the day where we need to begin. We must begin with the beginning. We're going to take a few moments here for the next hour, and we're going to walk through the first, two, first three chapters of Genesis. And when we're finished, I invite you not only to reflect on what we see, but I invite you to um, respond. Genesis 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. We can't go one verse without me needing to say something. Okay. Genesis 1.1. Um, I need to point some things out to you here um, so that you can grasp the, 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 the power in this text. I want to begin just by pointing out to you. Did you notice that the Bible's first verse does not begin with an argument for God's existence? 
There is no argument for the 10 reasons why you and I should believe in God. It simply begins with an assumption. (laughs) It begins with the assumption that there is a God. There's no argument. It's assumed. There is a God. In the beginning, God, Elohim, by the way, is the first uh, word that's used regarding God in, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, here in Genesis 1. Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God, bara, created the heavens and the earth. Now that phrase, you're going to notice this phrase right here, the heavens and the earth. Um, in Hebrew, this is a really unique literary device known as a merism. And a merism is a way of saying everything. It'd be like saying this. Uh, it'd be from east to west, top to down, the whole kit and caboodle. It'd be the way of saying everything. I want you to begin by just seeing that the, the Bible begins with a claim that everything you and I can see is made by God. It is all a creation of the good God who made it all. Everything was created by God. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. A few uh, sort of linguistic uh, things to see here. First of all, this word for God, Elohim, is actually a plural noun. Uh, it's, a, it's a meaning, it, it, it's, it references, apparently, it references either multiple or one singular speaking of themselves in the plural. And then all of a sudden you notice there's a God and then there's the spirit of God. You have in two verses, immediately in Genesis 1, you have two distinct persons referenced. God and the spirit of God. We'll come back to that. So God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. Uh, in Hebrew, the word that's used for good here is the word tov. Tov. Uh, tov. Um, uh, good, uh, beautiful, right, uh, delightful. God saw the light and it was good. And he separated. It's interesting. He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And then there was evening and there was morning the first day. I want to point out to you, what has God not created yet? He's made light, but what hasn't he made? There's no stars. There's no sun. God first creates the light. He does not create the sun first. He creates the light first. Put that in your back pocket. Hold on. Verse 6. And God said, let. Now you're going to notice, whenever you're reading the Bible, always pay attention to repetition. Here's why. For the authors of the Bible, repetition is the highlighter pen. The authors of these texts did not have an ability to italicize or underline or highlight. There's no emoticons. The way the author of the Bible gets you to pay attention to stuff is they repeat things. Notice the repetition of the word let. You're going to see it for the next five days. God said, let 
there'd be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and he separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Now I just gave you a tool that's going to revolutionize the way you read your Bible. Here's why. What do you always pay attention to? The repetition. Two days end with the same phrase. And there was evening and morning the first day. Day two, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Do you notice the same phrase? By the way, how does a Hebrew day work? Morning or evening? What's the first? Evening. It begins with the evening and the morning is the day. Now, in, in our cultural moment, right, in our time, when does the day begin? For us Americans, when does the day begin? It always starts in the morning. But in the Bible, the day never starts with the morning. And there's a reason why. How arrogant of us to think a day begins when we wake up. (laughs) We have the most self-centered understanding of time. The day starts when we start. But in the creation story, the day starts when we're asleep. It is as though someone is Lord as we snooze. Verse 9. So God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. Let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and he gathered the waters and the seas. And he saw that it was good. Everything God makes is good. God doesn't make bad things. Verse 11. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees and the, the, uh, on, the, on the land that bear fruit with seeds in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit seeds. By the way, I have a biology professor that I teach with. Who Every time I co-teach a class with him on biology in the Bible, he is always the first one to point out, do you know what God is doing here? He's creating species and biodiversity. Before any biologist could even come up with this idea of speciation, it's in Genesis 1, according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning. The third day, day four, let there be lights of the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark the sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the sky to, to, to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser night to govern the night. He also made the stars. You got to see some stuff here. <laughs> God, first of all, God now creates the sun, the moon, the stars. Did you notice light comes before the stars? Light comes before the sun. Light precedes the things that shine light. I also want you to see that none of the stars have names. Why might that matter? In the ancient world, what did everybody do? They worshiped the stars. There are no names for stars here. Why? Because the stars are not worthy of our worship. By the way, at the very end of the Bible, you go nerd out on the book of Revelation 20, 21, and 22. When John is describing heaven and earth, he says, 
Guess what we won't need in heaven? It doesn't say we won't have the sun. He says we won't need the sun. We'll have the sun. But the light of Christ will light the universe. Heaven is the reversal of creation. Creation, light, and then sun. Heaven, we will no longer need the sun because we will have the light of the world. Notice this. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. What are those? Those are times to party. (laughs) And by the way, when you read the Old Testament, it's awesome. Do you know how many times God tells his people, you guys need to have a party for that? (laughs) Yeah, you need to celebrate. That's a feast. We'll count that as a feast. You know how many times in the Bible God tells people to party? And not evil party. I'm not saying sinful party. I'm saying God commands so much celebration in the Old Testament. And here, God creates these things in the sky so that we would have sacred times and years. What hasn't been created yet? Humans. Celebration is built into creation before you and I even existed. It's in the stars. We don't even exist at this point. And God is saying, I'm creating a universe of celebration and joy. Verse 20. And God said, let the water team with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing which the water teams that moves about according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its time. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said... Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase the earth. Again, I just need to point out these things. Notice the first time God gives a commandment in the Bible, he does not give it to a human. He gives it to animals. And the commandment is be fruitful. You know what that means? The first commandment in the Bible is a commandment about sex. And, but, but it's not to you and me. It, it's to them. It's to the animals. Which implies that animals have the ability to obey God's voice. Now, you and I tend to think of animals as creatures that can't obey God. and can't. C.S. Lewis had a whole thing about this. C.S. Lewis believed that actually animals were created by God to live at intimacy with God and to obey his voice. They are given a command and they are called to fulfill it. And there was evening and there's morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kind, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, each according to his kind. This is funky. Why would God make livestock? We know what livestock are about. What kind of animals are livestock? Livestock are cows and poultry and chicken and sheep. They're animals that are used for human flourishing. Humans aren't even made yet, and God is already creating livestock. What is the deal? You know what God is doing here? He's doing what every parent does right before they're about to have a kid. They're getting the room ready. (laughs) Humans haven't even been made yet, and God is making livestock. His son's in the sky for celebration. He is creating a universe for these creatures he's eventually going to make. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, and it was good. 
Verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds of the sky, over livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now, you don't have to work hard to see this, but whoever it is who is creating here is going out of their way to speak in language that clarifies this is more than one. Now, as a, the, as a theologian, what we're, what we're looking at, this is the Trinity. This is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit creating the universe. Think about this. The universe was created by a small group. <laughs> Creation is made by a community of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We were made for community because we were created by community. So God made humankind or mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. Now we are in the origin story. We are in chapter one of the Bible. And we have immediately an introduction to sex difference. That when God created humankind, he did so in such a way that there are two different species, two different animals that, in a sense, and they are animals, by the way, they're made on day six, which is the day God made all the other animals. Although these animals, these are special land creatures who are made in God's image, and there is a male and there is a female together. Hold on to that. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Same exact command God gave to the animals. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every living creature that moves on the ground. God has given two commandments, and they are both about sex. I don't know how in the world Americans don't love the Bible. <laughs> because we are one chapter in, and there are two commandments, and they are both about God's ordained vision and desire for sexual beauty, and union. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant of the face of the earth and every fruit that has seed in it, and they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the sea, all the earth, birds of the air, creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life, and I give green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made. <laughs> and in Hebrew, it doesn't just say tov, good. It says tov, tov. Good, good. And that was evening, and that was morning, the sixth day. Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. He finishes the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day, and God made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had been done. And then all of a sudden, verse 4, we start all over again. This time, the story of the humans. So this is the account of the heavens and the earth, when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, 
No shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth, watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now, we've got we to pause for a second here. Some of you may be wondering, wow, I came to a sex seminar and we're talking about Genesis. I'm going to ask you to suspend your judgment for a few minutes because if you're willing to look at this text and what's going on here, the origin story reveals enough for itself. When God created the animals, did you notice that God created the animals at the same moment? the male and the female together. He made them two by two, which, by the way, is the same way that God brought the animals into Noah's Ark. It's kind of funny in the Noah's Ark story. When God says, bring the animals, it's funny to notice that Noah doesn't go out and get the animals. The animals come on their own, which implies that God went and told the animals, you need to get to the boat, which means animals can hear God's voice, but whatever. (laughs) By the way, for those of you who are like, that's not possible. Have you ever seen one of your dogs have shame? Okay. You're welcome. They, can, they know what's right and wrong, but whatever. <laughs> God created the animals two by two at the same time, male and female together. But you're going to notice something weird here because that's not how God created the humans. The way God created the humans was he created the man first. He created the man first. Now, all of a sudden, some of you are uncomfortable with the Bible. Because for some of us, we think that means, that must mean that men are more important than women. Because the man came first. If you think that is not an actual theological point people make, I'll send you the books. You can read them for yourself. There would be some who would argue, because God made the man first, men take precedence in the created order because they came first. And I want to say, if that is true, I want to point out every single man since that story has come from a woman, including Jesus. This is not an argument that men are more important than women. In no stretch, in no way is this what the text is saying. But it is saying that God, in his divinely orchestrated vision of the world, has created first the man. And what does he experience? Look at this. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees that grew out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for the food. And by the way, this is so cool, because what is the first thing God does in the garden in Genesis 2? He plants trees. He plants trees. By the way, what do people who plant trees, what do we call them? Gardeners. That's right. Gardeners. We call them gardeners. When Mary goes to the tomb, goes in and sees that it's empty, when Jesus is resurrected, she comes out, there's a guy standing outside the tomb. Who does Mary think he is? A gardener. Was she wrong? No, she wasn't. The gardener's back. The first image in the Bible of God is as a gardener, and the first image of the resurrected Jesus is as a gardener. You think that's a mistake? Goodness gracious. 
And in the middle of the garden was a tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watered through this, the Eden place. It's called a delight in Hebrew, Eden, delight. From there, separated into four headwaters. The name is, of one is uh, Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there's gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third is Tigris and it runs along the east side of Ashur and the fourth is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you do, you will certainly die. The first words out of God's mouth to Adam are, you are free. Hold on to that. It'll all come back together. Hold on. The Lord God said, it is not good for men to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The man is alone. The man is alone. He's alone. Has sin, question, has sin entered the world yet? There is no sin. There is no rebellion. There is no disobedience. I just want to point out to you, the man has God all to himself and a garden all to himself. It is an introvert's dream. The ultimate man cave. The ultimate man cave. He has God to himself, and yet he is still alone. It is possible. There's no sin. It hasn't entered the world yet. He is alone, and he has God to himself. You know, in Christian culture, when somebody says, I feel alone, I feel isolated, I feel alone, too often we say, all you need is God. And I want to say hogwash. We were made to need each other. God is not offended that Adam needs a friend. He's not mad that Adam is alone. He is not angry. God created Adam alone for a reason. Adam was intended to experience, hear this, Adam was intended to experience the only thing that humans can experience, and that is the experience of longing. We were made to long. Now, God is going to create the woman. He's going to bring the woman along, but he's not going to do it yet. He, he lets Adam experience his aloneness so that Adam can experience longing. Why would God do that? Here's why. Because you can't fully experience God as your provider unless you first experienced the loss of not having everything. God wanted Adam to know what it was like to need God to provide. Adam was alone. Unlike the animal creatures, he was alone. He was not created at the same time that the woman was. He was made at a different time so that he would experience this feeling. And so there, now the Lord God had formed out of the, the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. I'm sorry, I got to go back to one more thing here. Goodness gracious. This verse, this verse, goodness gracious. Oh, Lord Jesus, give me grace right here. This verse has been used in the church for so long to make single people feel like failures. 
I want to point out to you, this does not say it is not good for men to be unmarried. It is about community. The most fruitful person in human history was a single guy from Nazareth. This is not about marriage. It is about the fact that we were created by community to need community. It is not good for you to be alone. God did not want Adam to experience existential aloneness, but he did want him to experience longing so that he could know that God would provide for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. This whole name giving thing is so important because when you get to name something, what does that mean about you? If you get to name somebody, what does that say about your relationship to that being? I can tell you, I have named one person in my life. There's a little guy named Elliot, 11 years old, who's in Eugene right now, really wanting his dad to come home. I'm bringing in and out, so he'll have to wait. (laughs) But we got to name our son, because when you name somebody, what does that mean about you? It means you have authority. To name something implies, in ancient biblical literature, it means you have authority. You have authority over that thing to care for it and steward it and love it. You have a responsibility over it. What does God give the man responsibility to do? Name the animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with his flesh. This whole side rib thing is so critical because when Adam is asleep, God cuts him. The first healing in the Bible is God cuts and heals out of his side and creates this woman. Out of the side, he creates this woman. When Jesus is on the cross, when Jesus is on the cross, do not miss the imagery. When Jesus is on the cross, he is stabbed in the side. What comes out? Water and blood. Why water? Why would water come out of Jesus' side? John, the author, who's writing about the side of Jesus, makes a really important point. The first miracle in Jesus' ministry is he goes to a wedding and turns water into wine. You know what the last miracle is? The cross. And when Jesus is on the cross, what do they do? They hand Jesus some wine on a stick and a sponge. The first miracle, Jesus takes water and turns it into wine. On the cross, Jesus takes wine and turns it into water. And it comes out of his side. Why water out of his side? Because just as Adam was bringing the first bride, Christ is now bringing out that the second ride of the church. This is whole sad thing. It's, it's not a mystic. It's her side. It's his side. It's his side. What part of his body is she taken out of? The side, not the head, not the feet. Why would the side matter? Because they were intended to walk side by side. 
out of the side. They were intended to walk together. God's design, God's design is that these are two creatures whom he loves, who are both made in the image of God together, who walk alongside each other. The Lord God take the woman from the rib. He had taken another man and he brought her to the man. And what does he say? This is awesome. (laughs) This is Hebrew poetry, by the way. Um, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of the man. Let me point out to you. In patriarchal cultures in the ancient world, women were not respected. Women, frankly, were treated like garbage in the ancient world. And the first words out of the man's mouth over the woman in the Bible is how beautiful and glorious she is. It angers me to no end when somebody assumes the Bible is anti-women. It is the most pro-women book in the world. God looks, the man looks, and he says, look at her, she's incredible. And that is why a man shall shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they become one flesh. What's the problem with this verse? What's the problem with this verse? What did Adam Adam or the woman not have? Father or mother's. This is a weird commandment to have to obey when you don't have the thing that you need to obey it. <laughs> why would God say, well, this is why they leave there? Here is why this is important. That commandment was not given for Adam. It was given for us. Here's why this is beautiful. The command was given to Adam, but it was for us. This is why, friends, you and I guard and protect the Bible. Because whether you and I think it applies to us, it applies to someone. And whether you think, "Ah, I don't need this part of the Bible or something like that. No, you do. Why? Because when God speaks, it matters. And you don't cut out verses that don't make sense to you. There's a lot of verses in the Bible, folks, that don't always make sense to me. But that is not why you, you do not get rid of them because they don't make sense. You guard them. You protect them. God made them to walk side by side, to be in this garden, to make love, to eat good food. And then Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You've got to identify a few things here. First of all, notice the word that's used for the serpent. His name, by the way, in Hebrew right here is Nachash. Nachash. And it's more a title. It's not a name. It's a title. And he's crafty. It's not a mistake that in Hebrew, the word arum, which is used for crafty, is the same Hebrew word used in Proverbs as prudent and wise. The Bible is not saying that the devil is wise in the way a wise person is wise. The Bible is saying that this creature who has come into the garden is brilliant. He's smart. He knows what he's doing. And he's crafter than all the other wild animals the Lord God had made. That's an interesting comment because it means the serpent was created by God. The serpent is not an eternal creature. He was made by God. 
And as being made by God, as C.S. Lewis would point out, this is not, in the war between God and the serpent, it's not an even fight. It's between a creator and a creation. It's not an evil war. It's not, it's not a, a fair fight. And he says to the woman, notice the first thing he says. Did God really say? Did God really say? You must not eat from any tree in the garden. By the way, go back and read what God told Adam. Did God ever say this? Not even close. It's actually close. Except that the devil, the serpent, has omitted some words. You must not eat from any tree in the garden. God never said that. He said, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but there is one that you cannot, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, there's a, a scholar named D.A. Carson who makes a really great point about this. He says, isn't it interesting that the devil, the nachash, the serpent, crafts the message? He is trying to insinuate that God is a divine curmudgeon who's just trying to keep Adam from all the fun. Did God really say, you must not eat from an entry in the garden? God never said that. The devil is insinuating, and he asks a question about what God had said. Notice that the first attack of the enemy is an attack on what God has said. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And we notice there's a problem immediately because somewhere along the way, she has added to what God has said. The commandment, do not touch it, is never in God's commandment. In fact, I think they could have built a treehouse in the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and God would have been fine with that. He said, don't eat from it, not don't touch it. Frederick Dale Brunner is a New Testament scholar who says, at that, the woman in this story is the first Pharisee, adding to what God has said. And for anybody in the room who's like, don't bash on the woman. Hold on, I'll bash the dude in a second. <laughs> Look at the serpent. You won't die. You won't die. You won't die. The first thing the devil denies is the doctrine of judgment. You're not going to die. And this is brilliant. He's crafty. It's brilliant. He knows if he can get judgment out of the way, if he can get judgment out of the way, then anything else can go. If you no longer believe that you will give account to your existence and your life, if you can get that out of the way, anything else goes. You're not going to die. He attacks God's judgment. And he says, you're not going to be, there's no judgment. You do you. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. Now I'm going to pause because you're here. We're talking about sexuality and I know we're doing the origin story stuff here. We got to do this, but you've got to see the initial lie of the enemy. The enemy tells the woman, if you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. What's the problem with that? What is she already like? She 
She has already been made in the image of God. When the devil comes to Jesus in the desert and he tempts him three times, do you remember that temptation when he says, hey, Jesus, if you bow down and worship me, I will give you the nations. Who already had the nations? The enemy's number one deception is he offers us something we already have in God. There is a generation of young people who are being told, follow your sexual desires. You will find fulfillment. That has the devil written all over it. You are already fulfilled. Chase that identity. Go find it for yourself. You already have an identity. He's crafty. You'll be like God. She was already like God. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, was this tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, was it a bad tree? No, it was a glorious tree. God made this tree. It wasn't bad. It was beautiful. It was pleasing to the eye. It was a good tree, but a dangerous tree that you couldn't eat from. And all of a sudden, we are, we are given a vision just because something is beautiful doesn't mean it's for you. When I have a young person who says to me, I was made for this. Why would God withhold something from me that's good? I don't know. But I know this. God is a good God who knows what's good for us. It was pleasing to the eye. And he says, you can't have it. Just because it's beautiful doesn't mean you get it. And also desirable for gaining wisdom. And she took and ate it. Now, I am not here to beat the woman up. In fact, at the end of the day, Jiminy Crickets. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. Where was he the whole time? Right there. Don't you for one second get down on her and be like, you didn't. What's he doing? <laughs> Mr. Silent over here. <laughs> it is normally at this point, I have given this talk probably a hundred times. It is normally at this point. We laughed a little bit. But there are young men and young women in this room who are paying a lot in counseling because of this verse right here. The sin of the woman was that she chose to listen to the serpent over God. The sin of the man is passivity. He sits and watches. He doesn't do a thing about it. The number of young men who I know who are wounded not because their father sinned against them, but because they were unsure if their dad really loved them. 
He was right there. And it all, all of it, then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now there's this huge debate. What was the tree of knowledge of good and evil? What kind of tree was it? I think we have our answer. What did they sew together? <laughs> fig leaves. And by the way, if you've ever touched a fig leaf, any of you in the room who have ever had fig trees, you know fig leaves are like sandpaper. I'm going to tell you, there is no room in reason at all by which you would put that on that. <laughs> unless, unless you are trying to find something immediately to cover yourself. They sew their fig leaves to cover themselves. What are they covering? They are covering their shame, but bodily, anatomically, what are they covering? You know, when you look at a man and a woman, I know this sounds crazy, but when you look at a man and a woman, their bodies, they're different. <laughs> they're wildly different. They're insanely different. I'm not making some case that one is better than the other. I'm saying, I have eyeballs. And I've been married, and I've had kids, and I know men and women are different. And do you not find it beautiful that when God created the world, he created the man and the woman to look different. He created them to be different. And the first thing humans do after sin is they cover their differences. And when you cover your differences, you look the same. It's ironic. The design of God is difference. The design of the serpent is sameness. No difference. Our cultural moment has gone so far on this idea. We don't even need men and women anymore. Let's just, everybody can be the same. And I want to say, at what point did we drop the idea of diversity? God's vision of diversity is that you have a man and a woman who are created differently and they're in their glory and they're beautiful. And the first thing that they do is they don't want their differences to be seen anymore. We're the same. Ah, oh, breaks God's heart. The glory of God in those body parts. He made those body parts and they are beautiful and they're good. It's not a mistake. When Jesus goes into Jerusalem to die on a cross, he does one thing before he enters Jerusalem. He curses a victory. In Jesus, the fig tree no longer covers. In fact, in the earliest Christian community, when people were baptized for a hundred years, you know how they were baptized? They would take them down to a river and they would baptize people naked. You know why? Because when you're in Jesus, you've taken off the fig leaves. 
There's no shame. They cover themselves. Now, by the way, what, what is, no, notice, notice, what did I say about naming, by the way? When you name somebody, what does that mean you have? Authority. Hold on to that. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he walked in the garden of the cool of the day. They heard him, which means he was actually in the garden. And they hid. They hid among the trees. This is astounding. They go from fig leaves to trees. Paul knew exactly what he was writing when he says, when we cease finding our identity in the creator, we always start finding our identity in creation. Romans 1. We turn in the glory of the creator for the creation. What do they do? The first thing they do, they cover themselves with creation and then they run into creation. But the Lord God called them and he said, gosh, this, this hits me every time. Where are you? He, he doesn't... Did God know what they did? He knew what they did. Why would you say, where are you? What is God doing? He is doing what every awesome parent has learned to do. He is giving them a chance to confess. Where are you? Name it. Just name it. Just name it. There are actually theologians. I don't know if they're right, but it's interesting. There are some theologians who think that had Adam and the man and the woman right here confessed their sins, there would have been forgiveness and the fall would have never happened. I don't know if it's true. I think it's kind of crazy, but it's interesting to think about because God is inviting confession. Where are you? I heard you in the garden. I was afraid and I was naked, so I hid. What is he doing? He's blaming. He's blaming. I was afraid of you, God. You God who let us be in the garden with all this fruit. So I ran away. So I hid. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? The first three things God says are questions. Who told you? Who commanded you? He's inviting confession, confession, confession. The man said, the woman you put me here with, she gave me the fruit. I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what have you done? Four questions, four sentences. God is not indicting. He's not pointing his finger. What have you done? The serpent did it. I ate. Blame, blame, blame. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your, your belly and eat from dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And to the woman, God said this. As a result of your unwillingness to turn and, and, and name and your, and your deception and your rebellion, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, in the Bible, there are descriptions and prescriptions. Prescriptions are God telling somebody he wants something. Do this, do this, do this. Descriptions are when God is describing something, but he doesn't want it. For example, the Bible describes polygamy a lot. All of your heroes in the Bible, from Moses to Abraham, were all polygamists. How does that feel? Does that mean the Bible wants it? No, it's a description. It is not God saying, I want polygamy. It is God describing what happens when there is polygamy. And by the way, in every single occasion in the Bible in which polygamy is mentioned, the next story is a story of murder. 
Do you think there's a point? (laughs) That is a description. The Bible is not saying it. So here's the question. When God said to the husband, your desire, to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Description or prescription? I'm going to tell you, there's a bunch of women in this room who have been told from their earliest childhood years that that was God describing something that he wanted. And I'm going to say tonight, that is not a prescription, that's a description. And God is crying as he says it. Because of sin, because of sin, now the man is going to take over. And he will rule. And if you've had that weaponized against you to mean that in sex difference, you as the woman, your job is to shut up and not have a role and be ruled over. God does not say that with joy. His heart is broken. His heart is broken. He grieves. So to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, which I commanded, you must not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles. What? For you. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. It's not a mistake. Jesus on the cross wears thorns. And you will eat from the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since it, you are taken, since from it, you are taken. For dust you are, and dust you will return. The man will turn to his work for identity and it will not be able to supply him what he needs. The man will rule over the woman, not God's design. They were intended to walk side by side. The man will rule over the woman and she will long for her husband and he will long for his work. Sound familiar? It has become the story of all of our lives. Can I ask you a question? We've just read three chapters of the Bible. What is her name? What's her name? The word Eve has not been used yet. What is her name? Her name is the woman. The word Eve has not been found. When you name somebody, it's you taking authority. Did God give the man permission to name the woman? He gave him permission to name the animals. Her name, gosh, I'm getting emotional. Her name is woman. What is the first thing he does after this whole story? Adam names his wife Eve. And by the way, the word Eve means uh, mother of the living. The commentaries on this text. He is naming her for what he thinks she's good for. Her name is not Eve. Her name is the woman. God named her. It was her identity. In the Gospels, have you ever noticed what Jesus always calls the ladies? (laughs) He calls them women. Why? Because he's returning their identity. 
immediately following sin. The design of two women, two men, a man and a woman to walk next to each other in glory and goodness is subverted. And the man now is, he's taking over. And he's saying, you know, and I want to say in God's design, God created a world where we were meant to walk together. And when the devil is listened to, goodness gracious, everything just starts getting cattywampus. And so the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. This is the first death in the Bible. God apparently kills an animal to clothe them. And it will not be the last time in the Bible when something has to die so that we can be clothed. Here's what I want us to see tonight before you respond with fervor to what I have shared tonight. I want you to see that God's vision for sex and gender is not a mistake. It was intentional. It was thoughtful. And as an architect, God knows what he's doing. And you have to be blind to not recognize that the minute God's ways are turned away from, sexuality, gender, all of it begins to fall apart. And so today, I want to invite you to see that God knows what he's doing. He created a world in wonder and goodness, and he knows this story in and out, and he invites us to trust him that he knows what's best. It all falls apart when we no longer trust God for his word. And in our moment in history, I can't have a conversation about sexuality with anybody without convincing you God is worthy of our trust. And that everything he says is good. Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay. Okay. Somebody needs to start asking some questions. Today, as we walk away from, from, from Genesis 1 through 3, it is my hope that you can see afresh God's vision in this early creation story. But we want to create some space for Q&R. Uh, Billy, I don't know how you want to do this. How do you want to do this? Do you want to run around? <laughs> awesome. I will run around. Terrific. Love it. So yeah, just uh, hold up your hand if you have a question, yeah. and I'll uh, sprint over to you. Hmm. They're so gripped, they don't know what to say. I'm just kidding. Yes. Okay, one of the questions my kids and I always struggle with is yes. why is the tree there in the first place if God knows what's going to happen? There are two ways to answer that question, um, both of which are unconvincing to me, but I'll give them to you. One side would say this. 
Um, on the more reformed Calvinist side, the determinist view would say that God put them there and the tree there so that they would fall, that God determined that that would happen. There would be another position that I'm more inclined to that would say something like this. God created a choice in the garden because true love is impossible without choice. And I would tend to be more on that side, although there are some theological footnotes I'd add to that. At the end of the day, I don't love my wife because I'm forced to. I choose every day to wake up and love my wife. And without that sense of freedom, I'm not sure we can call it love. And so God, in essence, creates a choice. A choice. Um, you know, I, I just read uh, Love and Logic. It's a parenting book. And uh, the people that study parenting say that the best parents allow their, their kids to make decisions, and then they allow their kids to reap the consequences of those decisions. And that the worst thing you can do is teach your kid there are no consequences to your decisions. I wonder if God is just like the best parent in the universe. And he knows that it's, a, it's an important thing for humans to learn that their decisions matter, there are consequences, and there is freedom in the Garden of Eden. I mean, the first line that God says to the man is, you are free. It's the first line. That's my response. It's funny, as an academic, I'm like already arguing with my own thought. (laughs) Yeah, but whatever. We don't need to do that. Yeah, go for it, please. The question is uh, related to time in Eden. Yep. The days of creation, how long was day one to day two? (laughs) (laughs) So we have a weird, we have a weird understanding of time. Because we think, we think that time we think that heaven when we go to heaven will there be time we tend to think like no we're just gonna like float and like wear white garbs and carry hymnals and have harps apparently and that's heaven and that we're disembodied ghosts that don't live in time but I I think it's worth noting what's your name by the way Andrew Andrew I think it's worth noting, Andrew, that when John describes heaven, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every seven. What do we still have in heaven? We've still got a calendar. I think the point is, The Bible begins with time and it ends with time and that you and I are not eternal creatures who could not even handle eternity. You and I can only handle time. We were created in time. We cannot exist outside of time. We will be in time forever. How long are the days? I'm going to give you the best theological answer I have. I don't know. (laughs) And I'm okay with that. 
Because at the end of the day, I am invited to see a God who creates a rhythm and days that are brilliant beyond all wisdom and that God knows how it works. But at this stage, I get to say, I am way outside my pay grade to tell the Bible what I think it should say. It just gets to say what it says. A day. Please. So we have three kids, six and younger. Yes. And in the, the way that the world's going right now with children being able to identify as yes. whatever they want and yes. adults encouraging this behavior, as parents, how do we respond to that? And how do we, I guess, how do we help our kids to kind of move away from that when they're getting so many different Answers from somebody. Wow. Wow. (laughs) I just felt the temperature in this room rise just a little bit because it went from Bible to like this week and school. I would say two things. This is my gut level response to you as a parent. You have three kids? My number one response to you would be this. We should all consider this moment in time an opportunity to get a graduate degree in prayer. And what I mean by that is this kind of stuff forces me to my knees in such a dependent posture of humility before God. I cannot fix our world, and neither can you. But what I can do is face my crisis on my face before God. I would say the second thing that you could do is when your kids bring your questions, their questions home from school, and they bring all their things that they're seeing and all their friends who are making decisions, and they, you observe it. Here's the, one of the greatest gifts you can give your kids. Don't freak out. Be at peace. When Jesus walks into the room, when Thomas was doubting, He walks into Thomas, but he doesn't do so for a week. He waits a week before showing up. He didn't freak out. And when he shows up in the room, he looks at Thomas in the eyes and he says, peace be with you. (laughs) Jesus gave the disciples the gift of his peace. And when our kids see that we are anxiety-ridden, that is a whole curriculum we do not want to pass on. May you be the safest person for your kid to talk to. Just be safe. In, in, uh, in six months, <laughs> I'm going to do a lecture on gender. And when I do, I think that might be able to answer a few more of the kinds of questions about identity and stuff that we're asking. But at the end of the day, I would I invite you. What's your name? Kelsey. Kelsey and... 
Kelsey and Michael, you have been uniquely gifted by God at this moment in history to be parents, and you got nothing to be afraid of. He who is in you is way greater than he who is in the world. Be at peace. In fact, in fact, okay, I feel, okay, okay. <laughs> I really believe in the Holy Spirit, and I really hope you do too, because without the Holy Spirit, we got, got, we got nothing going for us right now. But I want to say, I want to just, I feel like I'm supposed to do this. In the name of Jesus, we lift our kids up to you. And we ask you, Jesus, to guard them and protect their beautiful little hearts. And those moments when words are spoken over them about their identity that are not true, they would hear the voice of the Father say, you are my son and my daughter, and I'm pleased with you. Protect our little ones at this moment in time. God, you are faithful and you love them. Guard them in the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Okay. There are questions, comments? Question. Yeah. Um, what would you say is the church's role in this world of gender confusion, identity confusion? How do we go out, um, out of our front doors, into our communities, and make any difference? I'm actually going to ask you if I could can I sit on that question for a moment while I hear another question can I just sit on that for a second I'll come back to you that's, that's a really important question I really appreciate you speaking to this audience and starting with the scripture and pointing out the, the reality that for the scripture and for us, the assumption is that God is and yes. that he's good. Right? Yes. And then you acknowledge the enemy who is undermining the idea of judgment. So in a culture that denies yes. both God and any sense of responsibility, where, yeah. where might we start with an audience that isn't as friendly to the scripture. Yes. Do you notice, can I just point out to all of you, and, and this, is, this, is, this should say something just about the assumptions that I bring when I talk about this topic. We talked about sexuality and gender a little bit today, but did you notice the majority of what we did was we just walked through scripture together? You may go like, I came tonight, I thought we were going to get like a full like head-pounding lecture on like the theological perspectives. I didn't do that tonight, and I didn't do it intentionally, because if we do not have a shared agreement that scripture is true, this conversation doesn't matter. It does not matter. I was actually telling one of the elders before today, this is my theory. You can disagree all you want with it, I, yeah, but, but I'm right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I am wholeheartedly convinced, wholeheartedly convinced that our cultural moment regarding sexuality and gender has almost nothing to do with sexuality and gender. It is about authority. It is about who is truthful and who is not. In as much as the fall in Genesis 3 wasn't really about fruit, it was about who, who are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to the serpent or are you going to listen to the God? 
If we do not have a shared in the church, if we do not have a shared agreement that scripture is worthy of our, of our attention and is true and is inspired, there is no way to have this conversation. Actually, I have friends. Um, we could bring up a bunch of issues. Have you ever had a Christian friend that disagrees with you on some major theological point and you like go at it, but you both are going to the Bible? You ever had that experience? Yeah, that's my life as a teacher. Okay, It's like we disagree and yet we both love the Bible. That is awesome when that happens. It's when we argue about theology and we have lost that scripture is the way that we can agree on stuff. When we no longer go to, the minute we no longer go to scripture, we lose. It's over. The first thing the enemy does is questions what God has said. This book, this book, it really comes down to this. Is what God said true and good? Or is what you want to hear true and good? That's what the conversation is about. You can say it's about sexuality and gender, but at the end of the day, friends, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I um, Part of my story, and I feel completely comfortable sharing this with you as a result of just knowing that this room, we need, we need to have safe conversation partners on this topic. When I was a kid, um, I had, I mentioned this morning, I had some unwanted sexual experiences that were, were not chosen for me. And those experiences, those experiences um, really wounded me as a child, and they have continued to wound me as an adult. <clears throat> and I say that to say, I have, a lot of I have a lot of debris in my life. And I have spent my adult life wrestling with, with sexual desires that I do not want. And I'm being very vulnerable up here, folks. If you think that this is, this is a, <laughs> it's hard to say that. I'm just gutsy enough to say it. We're all in the same boat. There ain't one person in this room that hasn't had desires that they don't want. And I want to say for people in this room who have had sexual desires and have decided to not follow them because of their obedience to Jesus, there's a crown of glory awaiting you. Jesus has made a promise. He has made a commitment that those that remain faithful will receive glory and honor and power. Following Jesus is costly. It is costly. We will either follow our cultural moment in time that says, be yourself, or we will follow the ways of Jesus, which says, deny yourself. But there is absolutely no middle ground. How do you have this conversation with people that don't agree with Scripture? You do so generously and you do so kindly. Because at the end of the day, if you're bombastic and you're mean, you end up pushing people away from the good news of Jesus. And I refuse to be complicit in that. I want to be generous and kind. And I'm going to do what A.W. Tozer once said. This is one of my favorite lines. A.W. Tozer once said, you know what we need? He says, we need a gentle dogmatism. And what he means by that is simultaneously, we need to know exactly what we believe and simultaneously do it with a smile. And that's the moment in time. I want to be dogmatic, but I want to be so stinking kind about it. That's how we do it. That's how we do it. Salt and light. We are called to be salt in this world. 
You know what salt, when salt doesn't taste good is when it doesn't get into other stuff. When you just eat a pile of salt. <laughs> you know what makes salt work is when it's not with salt. When it's with like other stuff. And we are told by Jesus to simultaneously be in the world but not of the world. Be salty. Don't lose your saltiness. Be in but not of. Unfortunately, at our moment in time, too many Christians have decided, I'm going to be in the world and I'm going to mirror the world. And there have been too many Christians who have said, I'm going to be out of the world. <gasps> I'm going to be out of the world. And I'm not going to have any contact in the world. And the problem with that is you're not going to have any witness. We need to be in and not of. And the minute we violate that, that principle of the in but not of, we lose our witness or we change the good news. And our task is not change the words of Jesus and go in the power of Jesus into the world that Jesus died on the cross for. And if you think that's an easy thing to do, then you've never tried it. <laughs> I had a student in my class. It was one of, uh, one of the students in the class who identified, he was, a, he was a gay kid, and he said to me, after class, I got to read the course reviews, which was hilarious, by the way. <laughs> the course reviews were great. I just wish I could publish them all for you. Because I had a gay, I had one of my students, one of my students, who's, who's a kid who's wrestled with same-sex attraction his whole life. He said to me at the end of class, in tears, he said, I didn't really agree with everything you said, but everything you said had so much grace, I have to like think about it now. And it dawned on me walking away from that conversation that we need to stop treating people like they can't have a hard conversation. What we've got to do is make sure we have the hard conversation with so much grace, it's ridiculous. What does Paul say? Season your conversation with grace. Season it with grace. Don't dance around the hard stuff. But when you do get to the hard stuff, man alive, people walk away feeling like, I disagreed with everything that guy said, but I was really loved. <laughs> it's a hard thing to practice. Hey, there's, yeah, right over here. Hi, Jay. I'm right here. Uh, Hello. Hey. First of all, thank you for your transparency. I really appreciate it. Yes. And yes. What I'm wrestling with, and maybe this is for a future discussion, but I'm anticipating the future of the church. Yes. And the reality that there are so many young people transitioning right now, making body-altering decisions. Yes. And... So much so that we're now seeing an entire detransitioning movement where people who have bought the lie of selecting their own identity are now living with excruciating physical pain, yes. mental pain, emotional turmoil. And I just want to be prepared as the church to care for people that are going to come yes. in, a girl looking like a man, a man with female body parts, and they're in they're dying inside and they can't they can't ever go back to what they were their voice will never change back their body will never change back and how do we show them the love of Jesus and truth like can you speak to that oh. 
when I was a kid, I, this, I'm, you know I'm old now because when I start saying, when I preface things with when I was a kid. <laughs> I have to like say that now. When I was a kid, when I was a kid, and kids my age went through an identity crisis, we just did stupid stuff like bought Playboy at the store and like smoked a cigarette behind the school and like, like you know, like put a cow in the top on the roof at your high school. <laughs> Somebody else did that. Um, we just did stupid things, just stupid things that didn't last. It kills me because kids are made to go through a rebellion some, in some way. We're made to do that. It's part of development. Like we are made to have a moment in our life when we just do stupid things because we're teenagers. And we have now equipped young people in their rebellion season to make decisions that will change the rest of their lives. And it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And I say all that with profound humility and compassion towards people in this room and in our lives who experience gender dysphoria and wondering, am I in the wrong body? I'll tell you what, we don't serve those young people by being judgmental. We serve them well by being profoundly compassionate and listening and being present to them. But we have created now an opportunity for our rebellion years to be rebellion years we can never walk out of. With that said, I have walked with no less than three people who have undergone detransitioning. And the stories of these people, of the regret and the sadness, and I think what's going to happen is in the next 20 years, we're going to see a ton of young people detransition and give their stories. And frankly, I think they're going to be martyrs. I think a lot of them are going to be like ostracized for telling their story. But I also want to say, Jesus ministered out of his scars. And I think there is going to be a generation of some young people who have scars on their body who will proclaim the goodness of Jesus who have a beautiful story to tell and will have a unique witness that no one else can tell. The scars can preach. They can preach. Sadly, in the short term, I think it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And our task is to be prophetic, to offer an alternative, and to speak truth where we can. But it's really, really, really hard. Um, for anybody in the room like myself who's literally walked with friends who have, I mean, it is. You lose a lot of sleep. In the early church, there were these people called the virgin martyrs. You probably never heard of them. Uh, the virgin martyrs were these people, these women in the early church, when Rome would tell Christians um, that they uh, didn't approve of them. There was this principle that Rome actually um, could take any Christian that they want sexually at any time, especially women. And there were these Christians in the early church called the virgin martyrs who were unwilling to give of their bodies. And they served God with their celibacy, with, their, with, with, with not entering into these, these evil, corrupt, non-consensual sexual relations. And I, I wonder if at our moment in time, God is going to raise up a community of, of sexual martyrs who are going to witness to Jesus 
through having walked through the fire. I hope it is. I hope it is. I also want to say, for anybody in the room who, who has just written off young people, go watch this revival in Kentucky and tell me that young people don't want God. They want God. They just don't want really stupid religion. But man, do they want God. Man, do they want God. I have led three of my students to Jesus in the last two years in the classroom. And I will be the first to say, this idea that young people are like wandering away, they don't want God. You literally cannot live without God. It doesn't work. <laughs> okay, I'm digressing. <laughs> young people are awesome, and I think that Jesus has their hearts. Okay, do we have time for one more question? Billy? Go. There's many that I see. There's one over there. There's one. Yeah, go. Uh, first off, I want to thank you for your, your spiritual discipline and uh, articulating how you articulate, giving the message to to me. Um, my, I have two questions. One is you mentioned male passivity. That's yes. obviously a big problem. Um, what are some prescriptions and biblical prescriptions for that? The second question is... Uh, for your in and out, do you do animal style? Or yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, those those questions are, are related in many ways. Okay, so animal style, no question, passivity. Uh, my friend Michelle, uh, I have a friend Michelle who's a therapist, uh, who made a comment to me once that really just rocked my boat as a dad. She said this, a lot of parents, a lot of parents would rather be absent than bad. <laughs> and her point is, for many of us, we, we opt for absence because we don't want to harm out of our own brokenness. And I think, at, at, in some way, shape, or form, the greatest way that we first, as men, we first can begin towards moving towards being present parents in our lives is we need to begin to get into our own broken stories. I lost you right there. <clears throat> During Christmas break, I did three days with my therapist where we got into my story of being a child. And when we were done with that story, when we were done with the three days, I had, uh, I was reading my Bible and I felt, it was a rare moment, but I felt like I heard the Holy Spirit say something to me that was just for me. And it was this, do you remember that time when Jesus says, let the little children come to me? We have always interpreted, it dawned on me, I was reading that, it dawned on me, we always interpret that to mean like, let other children come to Jesus. And for the first time I saw, I think Jesus was actually saying to me, let my inner child come to Jesus. Let that little kid who was so deeply wounded come to Jesus. And I will be the first to say, my ability to be a present father to my son is directly tied to me going into my own story and receiving healing. If we want to be present parents, if we want to be present husbands, have the guts to get into your own pain with somebody else 
in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Don't run away from it. I am mostly passive when I don't want to be known. And I don't want to be known because I got stuff inside that I don't want people to know about. But when the light has shined inside, then I really want to be known. I came back, gosh, why did you ask that question? (laughs) Such a great question. My son asked me, where did you go? Who'd you ask the question? Am I right? Okay, I I think I'm looking at the right person. My son asked me after that three days with my therapist, my son asked me, Dad, what were you doing for three days? I told him I was seeing my therapist. But what I was thinking was, for three days, I was loving you. I love him best when I'm finding the Father's love for me. In a world where there's a ton of passivity, I would rather be a present father who makes mistakes than an absent father who doesn't. The truth is, you're going to mess your child up no matter what you do. (laughs) And I would say, (laughs) mess them up with your presence rather than your absence. And by the way, you're sitting next to your your kiddo. I think I see a baby right there. Yeah. That's what I'd say. Get into your story. Get into your story. I, there was a weird moment a couple years ago where I, something clicked for me. I, in Christian circles, we have this weird view of like therapy and stuff where we're like kind of... AJ, what? Uh, sorry. Our, our child care is going to run out in nine minutes. Oh, it's right. I was going to say, therapists can be awesome. That's all I was going to say. Okay, okay, okay. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. I, uh, So this morning I said that not only do you give us the scriptures, but you give us AJ. And I want to thank you on behalf of our church family for doing that tonight. You gave us the scriptures. You're helping us to connect these dots. And you're also giving us yourself. And that is a precious gift. So thank you so much, my friend. Thank you so much. So guys, um, I uh, I hope you'll come back to the next one of these, which uh, I think is in a couple of months. I'll get to the dates soon. And we'll continue this journey. But for tonight, uh, if you would please just allow me to pray a closing prayer. If you would bow your heads. So Father God, we thank you uh, so much for this precious time. And we recognize that your Holy Spirit has been here. You're helping us, Lord, in our moment of need as we cry out to you. I thank you so much for AJ and his ministry to us and his life, and his teaching. And I'm praying, Lord, that each one of us would not just walk out of here without reflecting and pondering what we've learned here. Help us to grow, Lord. Help us to understand 
for every parent here. There's so many parents here. Help us, Lord, to, to not only understand what's happening in the world, but help us to understand what our kids are going through that we never went through so that we might bring to bear the grace of Jesus into their lives and their world. Lord, help us as a church to be salt, to be light. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And we're in over our heads, Lord, but we just cry out to you for help. And we know that you're with us. And so it's in your beautiful name, Jesus, the name that is above every name, the name at which every every one of us will bow our knee. Some of us will, will cry out your name tonight in our own pain from what AJ shared, and I'm praying for that that person, those folks. But it's in your name, Lord, that we pray. The name of Jesus. And we all said, Amen. Amen. AJ, thank you so much. I have one big takeaway. I am never eating anything fig-related again my entire life. No more fig jam. No more fig whatever. I don't even know what fig stuff is. It's done. We love you, brother. Guys, God bless you. Have a wonderful evening. We'll see you next time.